Good morning, Deer Creek Church. Oh, it's great to kind of be with you this morning. Uh, so glad that you could join us on the live stream to come and worship God and hear from his uh, scriptures. So if you're joining us at home and you have a Bible handy, I encourage you to pick that up, open up to Revelation chapter 5. Uh, we're continuing on in Revelation and uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. And as you turn there, just take a moment to ask God uh, that he would be with us this morning and that he would help us to learn from his, his scriptures. So let's go ahead and pray together now. God, we pray that we do need you. We need you to teach us. We need you to come to us by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to open our hearts and to open our minds to understand what it is you've set down for us, that we would learn from it, that we would apply it to our lives, and that we would actually live it out. And God, we need this message this morning. This is really a message of great encouragement. It's a message of great hope. And we pray that that would be the message that comes across. We pray that it would give us hope and encouragement in time of great uncertainty and that you would really speak to us in it. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in Revelation chapter 5, John opens up. This is the word of God beginning in Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. John says, Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the, uh, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, for you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It's the word of God. Now, N.T. Wright, he's maybe one of the most known biblical scholars and authors in the world today. He said last week in Revelation chapter 4, 
that Revelation chapter 4 was the second most important chapter in all the Bible. And then he would go on to say that the most important chapter in all the Bible was what we just read, Revelation chapter 5. And why is it so important? Why is this chapter the most important book, or sorry, the most important chapter in all of Scripture, according to N.T. Wright? Well, first, in order to answer that question, we have to remind ourselves where we're at. Because we saw last week that John was in heaven. And we said that Revelation, as a book, just offers us two different perspectives, two different vantage points from which to view the world. And we've compared this kind of to a camera lens, right? A camera lens has two different lenses that you can put on it. It has a zoom lens where you can peel in tight on a certain object. And if you do that, you can see things in really close detail. But then you can also take a camera, that camera lens off and put on a wide-angle lens, and you can get maybe more of a broader scope. You can see something from a much broader and wider perspective. And in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation, we saw the vantage point of Revelation zoomed in. Jesus, through John, was writing to seven churches in Asia Minor, and these were churches facing specific problems in a specific time and place. Some of these people were anxious. A lot of these people were fearful. A lot of these people were discouraged. They were suffering for their faith. And for them, they were experiencing what Jesus had told his closest followers during his time on earth. Jesus was giving them words of encouragement and he reminded them with these words. He said, I'm saying these things to you that you may take heart and may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, he says, I don't go to religion to make me happy because I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And he said that tongue in cheek, but he was saying the same thing as Jesus was saying. He was saying, if you follow Jesus, there are times at which you will bump up into discomfort. You will either, by your friends or by society or by coworkers generally, you will find out that if you follow Jesus at points, you are going to start running counter to the way the rest of the world thinks or acts or behaves. It's just a reality. And so for these people, revelation is a message of deep encouragement. It's a, it's a, it's a revelation of deep comfort. But for others that Jesus was writing to in these seven letters, it was very simply a, a challenge to them because they had grown complacent. They were faced with the opposition that comes with following Jesus, and they accommodated their beliefs and their lifestyle to match the culture around them instead of facing the tribulation that Jesus had spoken about to his earliest followers. And Jesus describes this group as their love having grown cold. He, he said that to the church in Ephesus. To others, he says that they are lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. That was the church in Laodicea. In other words, they were simply going through the motions. Now, I played baseball growing up, and one of the things that we would always say is, don't go through the motions. And me and my good friend in college, his name was Mac Land, we, we would uh, regularly go through the motions. In fact, when there was uh, times when uh, a big storm would be coming in, and we played uh, baseball in Nebraska, a big storm would be coming in, and we would be tasked with having to put this massive tarp over the entire field so that we could play a game later that weekend. And we would sometimes, in order to... Uh, 
abdicate ourselves from any responsibility and doing any work. We would simply go through the motions and we would walk around and we pretend like we were really busy, but really we were just kind of going through an act. We were there present in our bodies, but our hearts weren't in it. We weren't actually doing anything about it. We were simply complacent. And last week in chapter four, we noticed that the scenery changed. Jesus was no longer walking around the seven churches, but instead John got the wide-angle perspective. He got the opportunity to see the world from heaven, from the perspective of God, from the perspective of the one who rules it all. And in that vision, John's focus was turned toward a throne. And that throne was really significant because that throne reminded John, it reminded everybody that God was in control. He was in control of everything. And the word that we've been using, the word that Christians have used for years and years and and thousands of years is this idea of God being sovereign, that not an atom, not a speck of dust in the universe is outside of the control of the one who sits on the throne, even over things that we can't make sense of. And as Revelation is unpacked, there's 22 chapters, we're going to see that this throne continually shows up and everything in this book centers around this throne. In fact, that is the story and the vision of Revelation. It's the story of how God's kingdom, his throne, will one day come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's actually what's represented in verse 1 of chapter 5, our text this morning, where John looks and the first thing he sees seated on this throne is one with a scroll. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So what is John seeing here? Well, in the time of John, when a king wanted to carry out an official legislative act in order to carry out his purpose for his kingdom, what he would do is he would take papyrus paper, sometimes 30 feet long, And what he would do is he would write out this official official legislation on paper. And if it was really important, if it was something that he really wanted to make sure the message got across, he would write on both sides of the scroll because you didn't want two scrolls because if you had two scrolls, there was a chance that part of it would go missing. And then finally, after they were done writing on this scroll, this official legislative act of the king, they would roll this, this paper up and they would put blobs of wax in order to keep the scroll together. And now again, if you were really important, you would put multiple blobs of wax on these and then you would seal them. And what a seal was, was it was a special ring worn by a king. And what that king would use that ring for, it would have his signature in it and he would press it on those seals of wax. It was his way of saying that inside this scroll are the words of the king, the purpose of the king himself. And if you were really, really, really important, right, you would put not just one, two, three, four, five seals on these scrolls. You would put multiple. In fact, uh, the Roman emperor, his name was Vespasian, who died shortly before John's revelation here. In his last will and testament, he also had seven seals on his scroll of the last will and testament. We have something similar to this today. You probably know that when 
uh, a president is signing an official act of legislation, if it's a really historic act of legislation, he'll sometimes use multiple pens in order to sign that legislation. So there's more historical artifacts. It's just symbolizing this is something very important. And inside this scroll that we see in verse 1 is God's plan. It's God's purpose for all of the universe. It's his plan to bring his throne on earth as it is in heaven. And it's sealed with seven seals because it's God saying, this is important. This matters. It's front and back, seven seals. Listen to this message. And in order to carry out this purpose, there was often a symbolic act that accompanied it. In order to execute this official legislative act, an authorized person would come and they would crack these seals, they'd break the seals, they'd slit them open. And it was a symbolic way of saying, this is how God's plan is going to be executed. It's a way of saying, with every broken seal, what is in the scroll is being brought about. So you think of sometimes when you see a great boat that's been built and it's being commissioned out to sea. They'll often take a champagne bottle and they'll, they'll break it over the ship. It's a symbolic way of commissioning that boat for the purpose it was made for. And the same thing is happening here. It's a, when somebody would crack these seals or break these seals open, it was a symbolic act of putting something into, forth, putting something into force, of commissioning God's purpose. And after John sees this scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne... A question is prompted in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So you see the question. The question is, who can bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Who can bring about God's purpose for creation? And let me ask you, have you ever thought about what that actually might entail if God's throne came on earth as it is in heaven? Last week in chapter 4, right, we saw that there was great dissimilarity between heaven and earth. That heaven is marked by worship, that all of creation gives worship to God naturally. And we also saw in heaven that God rules all, all submit to him as their creator, but we saw that that's just emphatically not the case on earth. That is not our natural bent. John elsewhere, he describes this difference as a difference as stark as light and darkness. John says that God is light and in him is no darkness whatsoever. It's his way of saying that God is good. God's pure. God's perfect. He is beauty, beautiful in goodness. Paul, he, he put it another way. Paul was another follower of Jesus. He said that God dwells in inapproachable light. His goodness is so good that even the creatures in heaven sometimes have to shield their eyes from it. And here's the thing. We don't need anyone to tell us that we live in a world of darkness. And sometimes we don't even need anybody to tell us that there's darkness in us. But oftentimes we don't realize that there's darkness in us until... We see that darkness affect the people that we love. I actually remember, you know, I, di I didn't grow up following Jesus. And one of my best friends growing up, his name was Cam. I remember one time, it was in high school, that 
that I had actually tried to steal his girlfriend. This is my best friend. And I, I actually tried to take his girlfriend away from him because I was selfish and I was jealous of actually what he had. And I remember I tried to contact Cameron and he, he wasn't answering my calls. And finally I got him on the phone and he said to me, he said, I never want to see your face again. And I remember going home that night and I, I had never prayed to God before. I, I didn't know what to say to God in a moment like that, but I knew that I had to say something and I'm sitting there in a dark basement bedroom and I remember saying to God for just the very first time, I said, God, there's something inside me that I, I don't know what to do with. There's a darkness inside me. There's a hurt inside me that just seems to affect other people around me in ways that I can't even imagine. Will you please do something about it? Maybe that's you this morning. Heard a story also of a dad and his son this dad was having an argument with his wife and his son was two years old and he thought that his son was asleep in his room. And him and his wife are getting in an argument and he's pounding his fist on the kitchen counter saying, no, 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 I won't have it anymore. Then he walked down the hallway to his room and just as he was about to turn on into his room, he noticed his son's light was on and as he opened the door, he saw his two-year-old son sitting there in fear and trembling, saying the same words, no, 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 I won't take it anymore. He had deeply wounded and affected the son who he loved. So what would happen if heaven, God's goodness, his light, his throne came to earth? Well, it's the same thing that happens to darkness when light is exposed to it. It just dissipates. It, it, it flees. It's displaced. In fact, that's, that's how the Bible describes God's judgment. You know, oftentimes we have this idea of God's judgment as God standing above innocent people and arbitrarily kind of smiting people who don't really deserve it, deserve it. But instead, how the Bible describes it is God's goodness coming and displacing darkness. It's just moving it out of the way. It's God displacing evil and pain, suffering, sadness, disease and destruction, all the things that God hates most. It's like a racquetball. If you were to just take a racquetball, right, and you were to put it into water, what happens to the water when you press that racquetball down? The water has nowhere else to go but out. It just overflows. It's pushed out because it has no more place to go. And that's how God describes his judgment in the Bible, is that he's going to displace evil and darkness, even the darkness that's within us. And so that's the angel's challenge. Who can bring God's good kingdom, his, his kingdom to earth? Who can carry out his purpose of judgment? Who's worthy to open the seals and displace the darkness? Just think of the best person you know. Some of you, if you're thinking of the best person you know, you might be thinking of Mother Teresa maybe, you know, somebody who sacrificially gave herself for the benefit of others. Maybe you're thinking of a person you personally know, like your grandma or your mother or your father. Maybe you're thinking of Mr. Rogers. I don't know, you know. He seems pretty good. He seems pretty pure, even when he's wearing his red cardigan and nice sneakers. How about them? Are they worthy? Even the best people we know are not worthy, and that's what John hears. Because after this challenge from this mighty angel, John says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. Nobody. 
Nobody can eliminate the darkness. Nobody above the earth, in the earth, or under the earth, as John says. And if you've read the Old Testament, you realize that that's kind of the story of the Old Testament, right? Even the story of Israel. Israel attempted to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that, that was their purpose. They were supposed to be a signpost to heaven. And even at their high point with a man named King David, they couldn't make this come about. David was described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And we're told that even at this high point of David, he was standing on his roof one day and he sees a woman bathing and her name is Bathsheba. He actually orders Bathsheba to come into his household. He commits adultery with her, impregnates her, and then in order to cover his track, in order to cover his tracks, he kills Bathsheba's husband Uriah. This is the man after God's own heart. Can you imagine what he would have been like if he wasn't a man after God's own heart? That's the Old Testament story. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of us. It's one of failure, darkness. In order to illustrate that no one in heaven or on earth or in the universe is able and worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. It's like, it's like that show Wipeout. Remember the show Wipeout? Right, where you have these contestants and they're going through an obstacle course and, you know, they're having heavy objects thrown at them. And sometimes, you know, a, a big old boxing glove will come out and it'll punch them. And the whole point is to knock them off this obstacle course. And if you watch Wipeout, nobody ever wins. It's just who can endure the longest. Even sometimes you'll see people that'll be running up this big corridor and they'll take this final turn and they'll see. And, and there's the finish line right there. And there's the, but there's this massive boulder coming down. So they turn around in order to avoid the boulder, and then as soon as they do, a trap door opens and they fall down. It's a way of saying nobody's going to win this game. And that's, that's what John realizes here. Nobody can do this. God is light. We are darkness. And no one can open this scroll. And sometimes, you know, when we consider God's throne and we consider his plan, this idea that he's in control and that he has a purpose, that he has a plan, we often hear the question, well, if God is so good and he is so powerful, why is there all this evil in the world? Why is there so much darkness in the first place? Why, God, if you are in control, are there pandemics like the coronavirus? What are you doing? Joni Erickson Tata actually has some interesting words on this. She says, we rant and rave against God for the evil we have to endure in the world, but hardly blink at the evil that's in our own hearts. I think that's really, that's really perceptive because we ask ourselves the question, hey, yeah, God, we want you to intervene in the world and remove the darkness from the world. We want you to judge evil and darkness in the world, but you have to ask yourself the question, if what John is saying is true, that there is darkness in us, what would that mean for us? If God came and intervened and removed all darkness, what would that say about you and me? Would we be able to stand? Would we be worthy? Would we be able to stand before this God who is good? Or would we be displaced with the evil itself? So John has a response here, and it's probably the only natural response that we can have in light of what he hears in verse 3. In verse 4 he says, after seeing that no one was able to open it or look into it, I began to weep loudly. 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. We can understand these tears, can't we? See, John represents a persecuted church. He represents people who are suffering. He represents people who are following Jesus and they're meeting the resistance. John represents the husband who lost his wife of 25 years. John represents the aspiring mother who received news she can't have children. John's representing people who are trying to follow Jesus but still find themselves addicted to to whatever it is. It could be anything from gambling. It could be anything from pornography. It could be anything at all. But people who are enslaved, who are in bondage, who are wondering, how will I ever escape this bondage? makes me think of Nancy Guthrie, who's an author, and in an introduction to one of her books, she talks about the brink of her daughter's 10th birthday. She says, there's a significant birthday coming up in my house, and I'm finding myself thinking about it quite often. When I do, I feel a lump in my throat, and tears begin to burn behind my eyes. The day is coming when our daughter, Hope, would be 10. But our daughter's life was marked by days rather than years. She lived 199 days. Honestly, I had not known much sorrow in my life before Hope introduced me to it. But only two and a half years later, we buried her other brother, Gabriel, who was born with the same fatal metabolic disorder as his sister and lived a mere 183 days. I remember at the gravesite service, we heard the pastor say the same words both times. This is the place where we ask, is the gospel really true? Is Christianity true? really true? Is what we read about God's kingdom really true, or is it just a farce? Richard Bauckham says, as well as Revelation's perspective from above, the divine transcendence in heaven, it also, in some sense, adopts a perspective from below, that is, from the standpoint of those who are suffering victims of history, those who are acquainted with darkness. And John represents those who hope in Jesus, but find themselves asking this question, why and when, God, why and when? Why is this happening, and when will you bring it to an end? And John realizes the implications. If no one can open this scroll, there is no hope for Nancy Guthrie. And there is no hope for the victims of history. There's no hope for us. Friends, if no one can open this scroll and execute God's plan to bring heaven on earth then the coronavirus is the norm. Death is the norm. Broken families are the norm. Alcoholism is the norm. Abuse is the norm. There's no hope. Have you given that much thought? We often don't give this much thought because we often find ourselves distracted, whether it be with our work, whether it be with our technology. But this is the question that we should consider. If there is no God, if God can't, if no one can open these scrolls, then what is the purpose of all this? Even Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell was a famous skeptic of Christianity. He even wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. He understood the implications of this. He was interviewed at the end of his life and he was asked, Bertrand, if you don't believe in Christianity then what do you have to hold on to? His words, his response? He said, I hold on to grim, unyielding despair. He realized the implications. No one is able to open this scroll, and John weeps. 
That should be our response as well. But he sees a second thing. And we see that beginning in verse 5. He's approached by an elder who says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This elder uses two very important Old Testament verses. First, he uses one from Genesis 49, this idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion was a symbol of power. And he also uses this term, the root of David. What these are are messianic promises. That root of David comes from Isaiah chapter 11. These are messianic promises, promises that one day God would raise up a king who would conquer and overthrow the enemies of God and establish his kingdom. And the elder continues. Did you notice what he said? He said that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Not that he will conquer. Not that there's a day coming in the distant future when he'll come and conquer. But he says he's already conquered. He has already overthrown the enemies of God and established his kingdom. And that's what makes verse 6 so important. In fact, all of Revelation pivots on verse 6. Because John hears the lion from the tribe of Judah. But do you notice what he sees? He hears lion of the tribe of Judah. But then, verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb. Standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I don't think this is hyperbole, but one pastor, his name is Rankin Wilborn, said, we here are confronted with the major claim of revelation. In fact, it's the major claim of the entire Bible that Jesus is the lion. He is the promised Messiah. But he comes as the lamb who has conquered through his suffering, death, and resurrection. And what this means is the greatest threat that face the people of God, the greatest threat that faces every human being, is not a virus. It's not foreign kingdoms. It's not terrorism. It's none of these things. Instead, the enemy that has to be defeated is sin and death. The kingdom of darkness. In other words, what John sees here is that, that it took the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, the slaughtered lamb, in order to defeat God's enemies. That's what it took. Because the lamb to Jewish ears, right, they, they would have heard this and it would have conjured up three images. The first image would have been from Leviticus 16, which is this day of atonement. And atonement means paying for the sins of God's people. And what they would do is they would take this sacrificial lamb and the people symbolically would put their hands over this lamb and they would confess their sins over this lamb. And then they would take this lamb who was bearing the sins of the people and they would slaughter the lamb as a way to appease God's wrath. It was saying the punishment and darkness of God's people were being placed on this lamb and he was dying in their place. 
It would have conjured up the idea of the story of the Exodus, right? Maybe you remember the story of the Exodus, the story of the Passover, where God told his people to slaughter a lamb, take some of the blood, and smear it over the doorposts of their house so that when God, in order to liberate his people from slavery in Egypt, would come to judge the Egyptians, he would see the blood on the doorposts and he would pass over the houses. He would pass over them in judgment. But I think the thing that would have stood out most clearly to these readers would have been a prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that's led to a slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He poured out, poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see what Isaiah is saying there? It's the same thing that John is saying, that this promised lamb who would come and bear the sins of the people was this same Jesus. Jesus came to stand silently and be condemned as guilty even though he was innocent. So it's like, a, it's this puzzle, right? John is taking, well, Genesis 49, Leviticus 16, Isaiah chapter 11, but he's got one more image and this is a key image. It's on in verse six. Where does Jesus come from? Did you see that? See in verse 16, Jesus doesn't come from among the four living creatures. He doesn't come from the 24 elders sitting on, the thr on their thrones around the throne of God. Where does the lamb come from? He comes from the throne itself. Jesus doesn't come from out there or under the earth or on the earth. Instead, he comes from the very throne of God because he is God. The same God worshipped in chapter 4 is the Jesus worshipped here in chapter 5. Whoever God is, Jesus is. Whatever God does, Jesus does. Whatever is owed to God is owed to Jesus. And that's made so explicit and clear, and we're going to see this throughout Revelation, but we see it for the first time in verse 13. John hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Jesus is the eternal God, the son of God who stepped off his throne and entered into our suffering and weakness so that we might be forgiven of our sins. He's the lamb who was slaughtered, but he was resurrected. He's standing now before the throne of God. He did not stay dead, symbolizing that the key weapon in the kingdom of darkness, which is death itself, was, has been defeated. The only one authorized to take this scroll and bring about God's purposes and the only way for him to do so is through the suffering and death of Jesus. 
Leon Morris, a commentator, I think put it really brilliantly. He said, None but the inspired composer of heavenly visions could ever have thought of it. When men want symbols of power, they conjure up mighty beasts and birds of prey. Russia elevates the bear, Britain the lion, France the tiger, the United States the spread eagle. In fact, my wife uh, was involved in a sorority in college. Even, even in her sorority, they have the picture of the war eagle with a war arrow in its hand, in its claw, and a war trumpet in its claw. Even this Mighty sorority wanted to look powerful. But it was only the kingdom of heaven that would dare use its symbol of might. Not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless lamb. And at that, a slain lamb. Because friends, that's what we really needed. No matter what the threats are to the world. Pandemic, terrorism, natural security, national security, famine, food shortage, economic economic despair, poverty, all these things are important issues. But Jesus showed us that the greatest enemy he had to conquer was the kingdom of darkness. The way the, the, way the world that plagues our heart and manifests itself in our sin and in our own darkness. We need a savior from our sins, a savior from the darkness in our own hearts. And the final thing that John sees is the only response that we can have to this. He takes the scroll, beginning in verse 7 and then in verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is praised here because he is the only one who can bring sinners in darkness into heaven. When the kingdom of God comes, the only way anyone will enter in to it is through this ransom paid by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Don Carson says, if Christ had not died, there would not be a single redeemed person because no one is worthy. Heaven would be empty of people. Hell would be full of them. There would be no person forgiven. It's what a ransom is. A ransom is a payment to purchase something or someone from another. Jesus, by his blood, has ransomed a people for God. Without this blood shed on the cross, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no eternal life with God. There is no hope of anything beyond the grave. Not even our prayers to God can reach heaven if it's not for Jesus. That's what verse 8 means, right? These these creatures fall down before God with a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Not even the words of our mouth can reach heaven unless Jesus died on the cross. Do you see that? We're left with nothing. If this is not true, we're left with nothing but grim, unyielding despair. I remember thinking this. I remember, I remember thinking this at one point before I'd become a follower of Jesus, I remember asking, well, why does God require this? Why the slaughter 
Why the crucifixion? Why the death of his own son? Why couldn't God just forgive? But don't you see, all forgiveness requires some cost. True forgiveness always requires sacrifice. My wife and I, when we lived in Nashville, we were hosting a group of people over to our house. We were new there and we wanted to meet new people. And we're getting the table ready and we're cleaning the house. And all of a sudden outside, it's raining. We hear in our backyard this massive loud sound, this crunching sound. And so we're startled. We run to our backyard and we find out that this girl that we don't even know yet because she was coming to our house for the first time to, 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 to meet with us. This girl that we had never even known, she had run her car through our backyard fence. And, you know, she comes in, she's soaking wet, and she's just profusely saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And we say, hey, don't worry about it, it's fine, it's fine. Now, those were just words. See, because she got into her car later that night and she went home. But the fact remained, there was a fence that had to be paid for, and it had to come at the expense of someone And Hannah and I did what everybody does in Nashville. You call Jimmy Bob and you call Jimmy Bob and he comes out and he fixes your fence for $100. So we called Jimmy Bob, but the expense came out of our own pocket. It cost us something. We had to sacrifice personally for the forgiveness of this girl. Jesus himself has paid for the sins of the world so that we might be forgiven so that we might enter the kingdom of light. He's taken our sin, our condition, and our darkness upon himself. You might have heard the story of Joseph Damien. Joseph Damien was a man who wanted to go and care for lepers on the island of Hawaii. And he had, you know, cared for them for years and years, never actually contracting leprosy himself. One day, As was his custom, he went to the breakfast coffee bar and he was pouring himself a cup of coffee and some of the coffee spilled. It's scalding hot coffee and it fell on his bare feet and he didn't feel it. He realized finally in that moment that leprosy had finally touched him and and, and not feeling this, it, it came upon him that he had to go and address the people. So he goes and addresses this colony of lepers who are all gathered around him. And he always usually started his speeches by saying, you lepers are loved by God. But that day he started out with something different. He said, we lepers are loved by God. Jesus himself has entered into our darkness and taken on darkness, even though he was innocent, so that he could say, I am punished in the place of sinners. He stood in the place of sinners so that we could be forgiven and enter the kingdom of life and or the kingdom of light. And do you see the purpose of it all? It's verses 9 and 10. What's the purpose of it all? That we might live and be people for God. To be made a kingdom and priests to our God. That's why Jesus came so that we might live for God to worship God. And that's how you know you're hearing the message of Christianity, the message of Revelation clearly. You have to hear this. Revelation 5, Christianity, the Bible, what we call the gospel of Jesus, does not say live for God and he will love you. 
the message of Christianity is completely opposite of that. Instead, it is God loves you and died for you, and now you can live for God. Do you see the difference? Because it's the difference of worlds apart. As the, we are supposed to live now in light of Jesus' sacrifice and death as kingdom and a kingdom of priests. That is people who make sacrificial offerings of thanksgiving to God, of worship to God, to join in on verses 11 and 12. When John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. These are seven blessings, giving to God, sevenfold praise of God. And that's not incidental. Seven is the number of completion and wholeness, meaning Our worship is made complete. That's what God has ransomed us for. That we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. To live with God's throne at the center. To live with God's worship as the central purpose of our lives. And you might be thinking to yourself, because I know I've thought about this many times, well, isn't that kind of vain of God? Isn't that kind of self-centered of God? Well, it's not self-centered if you, in fact, are the center. If you're the center, that is not self-centered. This throne is the center of all of creation. It's at the center of all of the cosmos. It's the only thing that belongs there. And we often think, well... If I make this the purpose of life, then where's, where's happiness left for me? But friends, the real message is that true happiness is found when we cast ourselves before God and make him the center because he is the only one made for it. I was recently officiating a wedding and I was completely unprepared for this wedding. I didn't shave. I had actually forgotten my shirt that I was going to wear under my, uh, under my coat So 15, 20 minutes before the the wedding, I found myself driving as fast as I could to the nearest mall. And I had to buy a shirt and I had to run back to the church and I had to put all this stuff on. And finally, I had just enough energy and just enough wherewithal to actually stand up there and officiate the wedding. And after the wedding, you know, I kind of, I, I felt obligated. I had to go and I had to ask the wife's parents. And I said, I am so sorry. I was just completely scattered and, you know, I was unprepared. Will you please forgive me? And they said, oh, we didn't notice anything. It's because I wasn't at the center. Everybody's focus and their attention was on the bride and the groom. They were the center. It was their day. And friends, what God is showing us in this passage is he is the center. Every day is his day. And we have the privilege as people who have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus to enter into this worship that takes place in heaven. We have the privilege of casting down our crowns before God and saying, worthy are you, the one who sits upon the throne and to the lamb. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are on the throne. You're on the throne of heaven. You're at the center of the universe. And Jesus, you are also seated 
at the center of the universe, as the lamb who was slain. And you hear our prayers now as a fragrant incense because you were the one who was slain. You shed your blood as a ransom so that we could have a relationship with you, the God of the universe, and Holy Spirit, you also are God. We pray that you would apply this message to our hearts, that we would worship you, that we would give all worth, honor, glory, blessing, power to you, God. And we pray that that would be the center of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for becoming one of us, for bearing our sin, even though you were innocent. And we pray that you would help us respond now by truly worshiping you, even in these weird circumstances of being dispersed as a church. We ask this in in your name, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen.